creation ordinance in terms of marriage. And in both, he boasts, he's proud, he's audacious, he represents that rapid decline of the human race. Chapter 6 is where that decline hits bottom. I think that metaphor works, doesn't it? Where it hits bottom because God is going to make the decision to recreate the chaos that sin produces that resulted from chapter 3 causes God to make the decision, we're going to get to that in a minute, uh, in chapter uh, 6, verse uh, verse, um, 5 really is the key part, is where God makes that decision, I'm going to destroy everything. His language is, I'm going to destroy all flesh and recreate, start over, in other words. So that's a synopsis, but I keep doing that synopsis because that is how we understand the... The, the book of Genesis is explaining to us the incredible, gracious act of God in creating a beautiful world and what human sin did to that world. And so God is going to, instead of giving up, God is going to recreate it. And here we see his first, his first uh, uh, not attempt, his first phase of his recreation. And that will uh, we'll get into the second phase in just a little bit. Verses 1 through four of chapter six we covered last week as as we concluded our study of four and five so let me summarize real quickly because i don't want to read and go through all that again but the phrase sons of god in my understanding of that they are not angels it is a reference to mighty warriors mighty men who are indwelt by demons they are demon possessed or demon energized or satanic energized Uh, men, individuals, warriors, mighty warriors, who want to destroy the purity of the line that's going to bring redemption. And so they they sleep with the daughters of men. And the language that you see, they saw that the daughters of men were attractive. It's the same word that's translated in in chapter 3 as good, and they took. Eve saw it was good, she ate, took and ate. It's exactly the same language. And the Spirit of God says, I will no longer abide. I will no longer contend with. I will no longer strive with the debauchery of the human race. And these Nephilim that are produced in chapter 4, thats it's tragic because one old translation translated Nephilim giants. That is really not the correct way to understand that term. Nephilim is simply a term which means warrior or mighty warrior. So all it's saying is the results of this this union between these demon-energized or satanically-energized men with the daughters of men are these strong warriors who take and do what they want. They epitomize the debauchery and decline of the human race. So God makes a decision, and that's verse 5, where we want to pick up. All right? Now, we just summarized the last four months of our study. Just to clarify, you're saying the Nephilim are the, the sons, are the product of the... That's correct. The sons of that, God, sons of men, sons of God. What God happens in verse uh, 2. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, the language of verse 5 is, a, is very, very important. The Lord God saw 
that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. I want you to key in, first of all, on the term intention. Now, that's how the ESV translates that. The Lord saw the wickedness and that every intention, that is a key word, the God-given capacity to the human race, the God-given capacity to choose, the God-given capacity to make your own decisions. The God, I don't like to use the word free will, but I'll use it if you want me to. The God-given capacity of responsible freedom, so do you, you with me, is now being used for evil. In other words, and this is the key, what the human race is choosing to do with that God-given capacity of responsible freedom is choose rebellion, choose evil, choose debauchery. And it is in their hearts, it's in their thoughts, in their heart, to do evil continually. Jim? Yeah. Mine says inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. But that was like they were inclined towards evil. Mm-hmm. That's, that's uh, inclination is, is a legitimate way to translate that too. It's the, the intent or the importance, might be a better word, the importance of that word intent or inclination is this is a result of humanity exercising its responsible freedom to choose evil. It's in their thoughts, it's in their heart, it's in their choice. So you could conclude from that verse that there's not much hope here that things are not going to get better with the result of what the human race is choosing to do. Another way of putting it, if God does not intervene, if God does not intervene, it will result in the destruction of the human race. They will choose that. They will destroy themselves. Now, there is something that's kind of important to just throw in here as an aside, but it's an important aside. The Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25, when he's asked questions by his disciples. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him questions about the end times. And when the Lord talks about the end times, several times he compares the end to the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah. He does that several times. So the days of Noah and the debauchery and the, the, the evil at the time of Noah is comparable to the evil and debauchery that will be at the time of the end. And Jesus says, paraphrasing, if I did not return, the human race would destroy itself. That's exactly, there's a parallel between what is happening in the days of Noah and what will happen, as Jesus speaks prophetically, of the time at the end, what, what he calls the time of tribulation. And we therefore use that word to describe those those seven years. So I'm just, that's an aside, but it's important. By the way, that is another reason why, from the, the perspective of Jesus Christ, Noah is not a myth, a legend. Noah was a real human being who historically lived, and what is happening in this account is real history. This isn't just some made-up story. And I, that's just important, because when Jesus, Jesus keeps, he does this several times, Jesus keeps referring to the days of Noah 
We're not to understand it as say, oh, that's just some mythological figure like in the Gilgamesh epic, which is a Babylonian account of the flood. This is real history, and Jesus Christ assumes it's real history. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ draws lessons from this real history to make a parallel. As evil as it was in the days of Noah, which led the Lord to destroy the earth and start over, so it will be evil, that evil in the end times, and he's going to destroy and start over, but that'll be the new heaven and new earth. The final recreation theme of God. I'm preaching and I'm getting hot. But now, you know, that's an aside. It really isn't an aside, but it's an important aside. And I wanted to use this right here as as to draw that thread. That's really important in terms of the whole revelation of God. Did I lose you? You're with me. Where is the Olivet? Matthew 24 and 25. So can you can you draw some parallels? I mean, like today, and like man left to his own demise, or his own will to destroy himself. Uh, that that God has perimeters within His concept of humanity and how He relates to them and how they can relate to Him, and so. Sin doesn't really go unchecked in one sense. Well, it never goes unchecked in a long-term perspective of things. But, you know, the human race today is, I mean, every generation thinks it's worse than it was. When you go back and read the events leading up to World War II, World War I, they were horrible days. And World War I was an absolute horrific war. And many people thought, this is the end, Antichrist is, I mean, that's the language of that period. Well, then World War I, then it led to World War II, which was far worse. And so, I mean, every generation kind of struggles with that. But part of what's happening today in our world is a, uh, there's, there's, there haven't been many times in human history that are like this. We are living in a period where there just are almost no anchors and no foundation stones of, of anything, no moral or ethical foundation stones. I mean, Adolf Hitler had ethical and moral foundation stones, and he enforced it. You wouldn't agree to that necessarily, but he enforced it. We are legitimizing in our world what is a, is a major theme in the book of Judges. Every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, and that's okay. And if you read the book of Judges, every man is doing right in his own eyes was absolutely disastrous time for the 12 tribes of Israel. It was, it was absolutely horrific. They were on the verge of destroying themselves. I just, I'm teaching Judges in another class, and so it's really on my mind. And you really, you really see that. So we, we, we in our civilization today, we're buying that personal autonomy is the chief virtue of life. Do you understand what I mean? But personal autonomy, that's the chief virtue, and we need to protect that. It doesn't matter what you choose to do, as long as it's fulfilling and purposeful you. I can't hurt Jim in doing it, but as long as that doesn't matter. But, you know, um, to leave autonomy as the chief virtue of life, that is a self-destructive way to build a civilization. The United States of America today is a civilization ethically and morally firmly anchored in midair. And we really are. We have absolutely no anchors. We have no standards. We, yeah. nobody, knows, nobody knows exactly 
what are the ethical values and standards? So you pass a series of laws. That seems okay. And somebody pushes back and says, well, no, you can't do that. You're infringing on that person's freedom. They're autonomous. They can do whatever they want. As long as I don't hurt you, I can do whatever I want. When you build a civilization where there are no ethical or moral boundaries or standards, you are sowing the siege of your own destruction. There is no civilization in history that ever survived what we are choosing to do. None. There are none. Our, our founders warned against that. They debated about the people's ability to govern themselves. Well, it's the reason they built in so many checks and balances. I mean, the Electoral College is a check on the pure will of the people. And why they insisted on the Bible being taught yep. in school. That's right. That's right. And why they defined what sound religion was, and it was to be taught in school. Verse 6. <laughs> so, can I ask you one question? So to what extent was Enoch and his line a restraining force here? Or were they such a minority that, you know, preponderance? Uh, Jim's referring back to the previous chapter when we quickly went through that genealogy and we saw Enoch who walked with God. Remember that wonderful reference? You know, Jim, the only thing I can conclude is that that would have been a check for a period of time. But he's the only one who's kind of singled out in that way. But as it is for all of us, you and I are salt and light. You and I are salt and light, which means we are preserving Wherever we are, we are preserving further decline. And I, I believe that's what salt means as a metaphor. So that Enoch was there and Enoch was having an impact, that would have been that would have been a very positive check on the things that were going on. Verse 5. Now the, the Lord the Lord God, and it's Yahweh there, so it's the Lord God. May, yeah. The, the beginning of the verse 2 say the sons of God. Usually that's something that is honor with something good, that we are sons of God. Why it is used over here in a way that it presents warriors as bad? Well, part of, the, part of the, the phrase also is used in the Old Testament very negatively. It is used of Satan and his minions. It is used of the angelic hosts in Job. When the sons of God went to the throne room of God, Satan shows up. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the point. So it seems that that's how it's being used here. It's not being used in a positive sense. It's being used in a negative sense. We become the sons of God or the children of God by faith in in Christ. But sons of God is also a phrase that is used in the Old Testament of angelic beings. It is used that way. And so that's why commentators, expositors have struggled with this phrase. There are literally dozens of books and hundreds of biblical articles written on sons of God. I mean, it's very controversial, but but it is. It's a it's it's a it can be used in a positive sense of of people who are by faith sons of God, or it can it is used in a negative sense. So this is why when you said on the Son of Man, this is honorable when he said that. Yes. Yes. Jesus, you mean when Jesus? Yes. That's right. It does. It does. All right, now, verse, um, I lost my point. Verse 6. And the Lord, now it's Yahweh here, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. Now, I want you to notice, you, you see something here in verse 6 
that is very important for us to remember about God. God creates us as emotional beings because he's an emotional being. Do you understand what I'm saying? God has emotion. He creates us. And we are, we have, it's all sometimes put this way. God has intellect, emotion, will. We have intellect, emotion, will. That we are emotional beings is not a bad thing. That we are emotional beings is a part of what God has chosen to do. So you see here that God is grieving. This hurts God's heart when he sees what has happened to his creation. Because remember, go back to Genesis 1 and 2. You see this unbelievably beautiful world where the humans, Adam and Eve, have no needs. There's nothing they they don't want for anything. But they're moral creatures. God says, in the middle of that garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of that. Can you trust me on that? Well, now God sees as the the human race uses their responsible freedom to intentionally, willfully, a wonderful gift to be responsibly free is turned into a dastardly, dastardly consequence. God is saying they are sowing the seeds of their own destruction. And this grieves me. This hurts me. So I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to kill everybody. I'm going to wipe them out, but I'm not going to kill everybody. God, God's pain, this preaches well, that's why I'm saying it. God's pain leads to God's plan. That's a good way to remember it. God's plain pain, and he is, it hurts him. He hatches a plan, and it's a plan of recreation. That is a major theme of the Bible. Genesis 1, chapter 2, there's chaos, there's darkness, all that. God creates. Here, there's pain, chaos, God recreates. And you and I, 2 Corinthians 5.17, are a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. So we're part of this new creation. All right. And verse 7. So the Lord said, this is his plan. I will blot out man whom I have created on the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. But, that's a very important but, not total annihilation. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor is grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. No one escapes judgment apart from God's grace. Now it tells us why God uh, showed favor to Noah. It it would explain to us in verse 9. It would be legitimate to conclude that on planet Earth, there was only one righteous man on the planet, Noah. Well, and well, in his family. But I mean, there was only one righteous man on the planet. That's amazing, isn't it? That shows you the that shows you the uh, rapid debauched situation 
I mean, relatively speaking, rapid. I mean, it was hundreds and hundreds of years, but how quickly the beauty of everything God had created and the, the, the charm and the, 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 the glory of everything, it's all gone. It is all gone. So God recreates. But God, God, this is another theme throughout the scriptures. God always has a remnant. There is always a remnant. In, in the midst, no matter how bad things get, there's always a remnant. There, there's someone or some group where they they have chosen to follow God. Mm-hmm. He not he not walked with God. They said earlier in not yes. He's not around anymore. No, he would be he would be uh, he would have, uh, t- he was taken. He didn't die. Remember, he was taken by the Lord okay. to heaven. Yeah. And, and Noah um, had the option, just like every person on earth, to make this decision to worship God and serve God. And it wasn't manipulation by God no. to do this. No, uh, no. His own Again, will. what you have is, I like to put it, responsible freedom. Yeah. Noah, in his responsible freedom, is choosing to worship and walk with God. Everyone else, that's, that's why that previous verse, the intention, I mean, that very, very important word there. The intent, the heart, the choice, the responsible exercise freedom of the human race is to rebel against God. We don't care. But not Noah. Not, not Noah at all. Okay? Now verse 9. Now we just, it's just a quick, it's like stepping back for a minute. I want to introduce you to this character of Moses. Of uh, Moses saying, I want to introduce you to this character of Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, faithful, covenant, obedient. Here's a man who walks with God. He's blameless. Now, that's ESV's translated that. Blameless in the sense of complete. It's not that he's sinless, but he is a man that walks so closely with God, as it says, he walked with God. Exactly the same thing was used to describe Enoch. Uh, in, in last week's chapter when we were studying that. So you, you have a distinct, this is the point, you have this distinct contrast between Noah and everybody else. Every other human being on earth. First several verses of chapter 6. But there's Noah. God always has a There's always somebody that is faithfully choosing to walk with him. They may, it may, they may seem inconsequential. They may not seem important. You know, humanly look speaking, but from God's perspective, that's my man. That's my man. He's walking with me. Is Noah descendant of Enoch or not? Yeah, yes, he is. Yes, if you go back to chapter 5, which we covered last week, the genealogies, yes. So Noah is descendant of Enoch. He is a descendant of Enoch. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I keep losing my place. Verse 10. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, now that's his family. That's his genealogy. Now we know this family stands out distinctively from everybody else. Now verse 11. I want to remind you of something. I I, I keep going, but that's that's the point. You go back to how God set things up. God said to the human race, I'm creating you in my image. You have dominion authority over my world. You are my theocratic steward. Okay? 
Now, how has the human race been doing with this dominion authority, this theocratic stewardship? Well, verse 11, created to rule. What has humanity done? Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Remember what God said. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The language of verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt. The earth was filled with violence. Created to rule humanity has sunk to debauchery and self-destruction. Self-destructive violence. Evil fills the earth. See the language, the, the, para, the parallel between what you see in the beginning of Genesis and what you see now. See the parallel? Responsible freedom. Humanity has chosen to side with the rebellion. And instead of bountiful, righteous, image bearers of God with dominion authority, filling the earth in worship of him, the earth is corrupt, and it's filled with violence. And God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt, and that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I mean, we, we translate that word corrupt. I mean, this is the depths of depravity. I mean, that's, the, that's that term, the depths of human depravity. It filled the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them, but I will destroy them with the earth. Uh, destroy them with the earth. So God is going to start over again. There's no other way to see it. God's going to start over. He's going to cleanse the earth by destroying all who have chosen rebellion against him and all that bear the curse of that choice. He's going to start over. But, Noah, I'm not going to destroy you. Make yourself, I'm in verse 14 now, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. That is very difficult to translate. We're not exactly sure what kind of tree that is. There's a lot of discussion about that. It doesn't matter. But it's just, we're not exactly sure what tree this is. But anyway, obviously it would have to be a very sturdy kind of wood, but yeah. I got in my book, I got cypress wood. Is that? It's, uh, yeah, you could, let's make it cypress, whatever you want to make it. We're just not sure. <laughs> Honestly, we're not, there's a lot of discussion about that. It's, it's, an, it's a rare Hebrew where nobody's exactly sure what kind of wood it is. It doesn't matter. But make rooms in the ark, covered inside and outside with pitch. This is how you're to make it. I'll, you know, I'll read it, but you know, it isn't. I don't want you to get bored with it. It's how to make it. The length of the ark would be 300 cubits. Now, cubit is about 18 inches. So, if you do the math, you can figure out it's a very formidable structure, and its breadth 50 cubits, 50 times 18 inches, and its height 30 cubits, 30 times 18 inches. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it 
to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. So you've got three, you understand what a deck is. Got three decks to it. This is a formidable structure. Now, if we, are, if we were correct in understanding what um, verse 3 of this verse, it's 120 years from the time God announces this until he sends the flood. So Noah's going to work on this for 120 years, if we've understood that correctly. There is some discussion about that. Verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That's categorical language. There's no ambiguity there. God is going to destroy everything and start over. But in order to start over, he's not going to create ex nihilo like he did in Genesis 1. You understand? He's not going to create out of nothing. He's going to save a group of people and representatives of all the animals and start over with them. And that's what the ark is all about. I, I'm telling you the obvious, but you understand what he's doing here. Do you read that the earth itself was changed from its original creation after the flood, when the flood proceeded? Absolutely. We will read about that a little bit later, and I don't know if we'll get to it today, but a little bit later in the account of the flood. The flood absolutely transformed the topography of planet Earth because it talks about it talks about the deeps cracking open as well as the water. Sources of the water for the flood were two, from the sky, the rain, as well as the, the thing cracking open. This transforms the topography of planet Earth. Planet Earth is totally different after the flood than it was before the flood. Now, I'm not sure, I don't know how detailed we can be in explaining all that top, topographical difference, but there's no doubt that, that the Earth is very, very different before and after. I keep losing my place. Um, verse 18, but I, this is very important language, but I will establish my covenant with you. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. By the way, that's the thesis of a really good book that came out about two years ago. It's called A Covenant People. Just anyway, anyway, that's God. That's who he is. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and every living thing, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of the creeping things according to the ground, according to its very kind, two of every sort shall become into you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten, store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Now Noah did this, and he did all that the Lord commanded him. I'm going to cite this, I don't forget through it all today. But definitely by next week. There are four major points where Noah obeys the Lord. God commands and Noah obeys. Now, I know for you and me, this is so familiar. We've studied in Sunday school and all those things. Everybody, there was a movie out was a year or two ago about Noah. I forget what the name of it was. Russell Crowe was Noah. I know that. But, you know, all, all of that, but you forget. Just imagine you're Noah. Just imagine you're Noah. You're more than likely in the Mesopotamian Valley. We're pretty sure because he'll <coughs> land up in Mount Ararat, which is in the north. So he's probably in the Mesopotamian Valley. 
and God is saying, this is the flat area. I'm going to destroy everything water. So build a boat. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then he gives him the dimensions. Okay. And Noah, you and your family go into that ark. And, and two, male and female of every creature, every species on earth are going with you. I don't know about you, but I would say, I have a few questions, Lord. Let's talk about this, you know. But the language of the text is Noah walks with God. And Noah did not need any particular insight to see the monstrosity of the evil all around him. He knew what God was doing. He knew why God was doing it, and he obeyed God. This is a very, very important sentence I'm going to utter. The Bible makes it very clear there is a moral and ethical basis for the flood. There are many, many, many accounts of the flood coming out of the ancient world. The Bible is not the only book that records the flood. Many texts coming out of the ancient world talk about a deluge, a great flood. But every single one of them except the Bible has a non-moral, non-ethical reason for the flood. The Bible makes it very clear. There's an ethical reason for this. The Babylonian Gilgamesh epic, which is a flood, says the reason the gods sent the flood is they were getting sick and tired of humanity making so much noise. <laughs> I'm serious. Well, there's no moral or ethical basis for that. It's a temper tantrum of the deities. You know, they're kind of frustrated with all the noise you might saw. We're going to shut them up. We're going to send a flood. Well, there's no moral ethic. But the flood, in, in, according to the scriptures, is, is a decisive, clear indication. You have a righteous God. You have humans exercising responsible freedom to destroy themselves through their debauchery and sin. And therefore, God says, I'm going to start over. So I'm, I'm, it may seem obvious to you because of the way we're studying it, but I want you to understand there's no other account coming out of the ancient world of the flood that makes that decision, makes that declaration. It's always stupid, silly, um, inconsequential decisions on the part of the gods, and it's not one, it's gods. But the Bible doesn't present it that way because that's not how the one true God really is. He's a moral, ethical creature not creature, being. Does that mean that the people that were destroyed outside of Noah, his wife, and the three, three sons, and their wife, that um, those people were eternally separated from God? Yep. Yep. There's no other way to reach that conclusion, friend. I came to faith in Christ because of the flood. Really? Yeah, I was in a school that taught that this was much, we just had these things in the Bible just to make you believe in something. And I really rejected that in my classroom. And so I got out of high school and then I thought, this is crazy. Well, then I was at home one night and there was a thing on TV in search of Noah's Ark. And I was supposed to go out with some buddies and then they couldn't, so I watched it. And then it said, this was a true event. Well, I went to bed that night. I said, I got on my knees in my bedroom. I said, Lord, help me understand everything. My goodness. Wow. And so then I went back to work the next day, and he deluged me with people that were Christians. <laughs> <laughs> and so he started, they started witnessing to me, and, and then one of them, well, they finally got to me. 
mm -hmm. and it was all because of the flood. I wow. couldn't understand the Lord. Wow. You know, through my prayer to him, and then he brought people. <coughs> that's neat. That's neat. Thanks for sharing that, Tom. That's that's good to hear that. It's good to hear that. All right. Let's move into chapter 7 then. Everybody's with me? Verse 7, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, and by the way, Lord, and all these, Lord is Yahweh, capital L, capital O, just keep stressing that wonderful title of God, self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am. Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Again, that striking contrast between Noah and everyone else. That we, that's intentional. You're, you're not, not on the side, that's intentional. Then verse 7, uh, verse 2 of chapter 7, we, we see something else that's a little bit unique. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and female, and a pair of the animals that are not clean. Now that that's a distinction that becomes important because the clean animals will be those used for sacrifices. When the flood is over and when you exit from the ark, you will need these for sacrifices. So already, and, and the Bible doesn't, doesn't, doesn't explain this yet, that's coming up, but already in what God has revealed to Noah and his family, there's a distinction between clean animals and unclean animals. Are you with me or are you, are you not with me? It's just... What is an unclean animal compared to a clean Well, we will learn a little more about the specifics of that in, um, in the Levitical law, in the law that God gives to Moses. Uh, and there'll be some distinctions, like an unclean animal would be a pig. Okay. But it's what will eventually be called the kosher uh, food laws and so on. But the, the, the clean animals, and again, this... The specific nature of this will be coming up a little bit later. But the clean animals are those which are used to sacrifice the Lord, like a lamb or a goat or a ram, some of the clean animals. But God is just making that distinction, and we'll learn why that's important a little bit later on. Verse 3, And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep them offspring alive in the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out on the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. The second time we see that. He obeys. Second time he obeys. Now verse 6. And Noah was six hundred years old, and the flood of the waters came upon the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of the clean animals and of the animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. Third time it has identified Moses obeying, uh, Noah obeying God. And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Now, verse 11. This is a very important verse. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, and on the 17th day of that month. Why be so specific? I suppose it's to establish some authenticity to this. Exactly. This is a real date. 
He could have just, the Bible could just say, in the 600th year of his, his life, the flood came. No, on an exact date, the 600th year, second month, 17th day, what God said was going to happen, happened. The Bible does this all the time. In, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, it does this all the time. It gives you very specific information about that event, because if it's John writing in the Gospel of John, he says, I was there, I saw that. And there were 143 fish caught that day when Jesus said, cast your net over. Why did John tell us it's exactly that number? Because I was there and I counted them. And you then have to choose. This is either real history, it's really true, or somebody's making this up as a legend. But the Bible, and this, I'm, I'm, I believe this very strongly, this is, this is to make sure, pinpoint an exact, precise date that what God said was going to happen, here's when it happened. Again. Is this for faith to encourage? Well, sure, it builds our faith. I mean, it, it, this, uh, Jim's word's the good word. This is authentic, the authenticity of this event. I know I'm kind of preaching here, but... Now, notice, notice this gets back to what Fred's question was. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep, verse 4, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So there are two sources of water for the flood. The rain that comes from the heavens, what we just saw last night, but also the fountains of the great deep. The, 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 the point is the earth cracks open. So, I mean, it, 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 what Fred was alluding to his question, the topography of planet Earth is going to be transformed because of this flood. Not only because of what that much water will do, but because of the source of the water. And so it's, just, it's, going to, it's a watershed in the geology of planet Earth. That's not a bad sentence. It's a watershed in the geology of planet Earth. I hope you understand that sentence. But, I mean, that's just a very, very important piece of information. There's this very specific date, and there's a very specific declaration of the source of this water with the obvious implication, this is really going to transform stuff. You can't have a, something like this happen, and everything's going to be exactly the same as it was before. No, it's going to be very, very different. Joel, did you ever hear that? Yeah. Joel. Oh, I'm just... The, uh... Does this give any credence to the, the theory that you know the, the continents were all connected at one point in time? Well, th there is no doubt that the continents were at one time all together. There's no doubt about yeah. that. But it, I, nobody can be dogmatic that this is when the continents separated. Okay. But it would at least possibly. I mean, you know, that would make sense. It could. But I'm just, I'm not really enough of an expert on those things, nor do I think we can say, well, here the Bible said it, this is when it happened. I'm not sure the Bible's telling us that. But it would seem reasonable to conclude this could have been when that occurred. So, but the point being, when my, when my kids are taught that in school, that's not a crazy teaching. No, the idea that the cottons were all one, that is not a crazy idea. That, I, very much that, that is the case. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But how and when God did the separation of continents, it would seem reasonable to conclude it was probably the flood, but the Bible isn't telling us it's the flood. So let's pound the table real hard on that one because we're not sure it's true. Just sounds good. Yeah. There is something that's in the back of my mind, too, is that 
this kind of explains this, this idea that there's a second source, not just rain. That's right. Would um, answer a challenge that well couldn't have been forty days before they could not have rained enough. That's right. Before. That's a, yeah, sure. That's not the only source of the water. That's exactly. Now this, this is an important theological point. That chaos we saw in chapter one verse two has returned. Things are without form. There's darkness. Things need to be reshaped again. And that's what God's about to do. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And the same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. Every beast, according to its kind, livestock, according to its kind, every creeping thing that creeps in the earth, according to its kind, every bird, according to its kind, every creature. Then they went to the ark with Noah to... By two, all flesh was on the earth, the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, fourth time. And the Lord shut him in. Yahweh shut him in. That underscores the very important relationship Noah had with God. My father, my dad, not well at all. He's 92, and he's really not doing well. But he loves trying to see Ernie Ford. He really does. And uh, he, I don't think he does much anymore, but he used to listen to his records all the time. And there's a song, I don't even remember which one it is, but there's a song that Tennessee or Ernie Ford's son had sung about the flood. And at the end, God says, Noah, hurry up and shut the door. Well, that's not biblical, because Noah isn't going to shut the door. God's going to shut the door. I have no idea why I just thought of that, but I just did. I just thought of that Tennessee Winning Ford song my dad used to listen to all the time. Could you extrapolate that with, with God shutting the door, that that's his first step to re, re creating order? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's a finality. There, there's a finality here to the remnant being saved, and God is given the instruction, Noah has obeyed four commands, four times he's obeyed. Now God says, okay, I'm about to do it. I, I will provide the security and protection for you that the ark is going to provide in this delusion, catastrophe, and chaos. I'll take care of you. And again, God, excuse me, Jesus, uh, who is God, but Jesus uses the same analogy of 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 as in the days of Noah, God also was preserving. And God will do that at at the end. God always has a remnant. He always has a remnant. Um, And in this case, it was Noah and his family. All right, now, the material that follows is equally as important. So let's just, I'm looking at my watch, see how far we can get. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days in the earth. The waters increased and bore the ark, and it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed, increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated over the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now again, a cubit is about 18 inches, so multiply 15 times 18 inches, and you have the length there. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm in the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing 
that was on the face of the ground. Man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was alive. Now, let's make sure we just really, really affirm something here. God has the freedom as the creator to do what he just did. Do you understand that? That's a, that's a simple sentence, but it's a profound sentence. God has the freedom and the power to do what he just did. Why? Because he's the creator. He has the freedom. You can't say this is the temper tantrum of some capricious God. This is a God who judges based on his ethical standards. And he has every right to do that. God, God, God's judgments, God's declarations of judgment, are, are never superficial. They're never shallow. They're never baseless. They're always rooted in his character and what he has revealed. And so God is the creator who revealed his standards, revealed his character. And when humanity and its responsible freedom chooses to stub their nose at him, he has every right to call them to account. But the God who judges is also the God who redeems. And the redemptive theme is there in Noah. God redeemed. God chooses out of his grace to still allow humanity to survive. He's starting over with Noah. So you have God's righteous judgment. He has every right to do that. He's the creator. But he doesn't annihilate. There's his grace. He is going to start over. He doesn't have to do that. But he chooses to do that. And so it's these, these twin themes that you just see throughout the Bible. God is a God who judges based on his righteousness, but he's also a God who redeems based on his grace. And that, you see it here. <clears throat> All right. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, so God shutting Noah, and this means that it was God's choice, not Noah. Who, got, who gets on the ark of Noah? That's correct. Noah. That's correct. So can eliminate Noah's kind of uh, guilt of being the one who chooses who is going to be on the ark or not, or, or just uh, pointing that God is the one who does that? Well, but, but it, God, if you use the language you're using, God chose Noah because it, we saw that earlier in a chapter that Noah was a righteous man. Noah walked with God. And the contrast between Noah and everybody else is clear. Everyone else is intentionally, going back to that key word at the beginning of the chapter, intentionally chooses rebellion and debauchery. Noah doesn't. And it's on that, it's that mysterious mixture again of sovereignty, but also responsible freedom of the human being. But here, Noah, I mean, Noah is, Noah is <clears throat> saved from the judgment because he is a righteous man. He chose to walk with God. But just the fact that he is a chosen one does not give him the right to choose others to join him on the ark. He was told. He was directed by God. He was directed by God, and then God, mm -hmm. the one who chose to close the ark by himself, so he cannot 
choose to say I'm going to take an extra animal. Oh yeah, not yeah. He is. I'm going to take extra human being with me. And that's because the, the key we, we saw that four times. What God tells him to do, he obeys. He 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 does what God is asking him to do. All right. Um, it's. Let me introduce this next chapter because we're almost out of time. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Almost, if not every one of your translations, what's the first word of verse 1? But. But. In all that God has done in destroying all flesh, but God remembered Noah. It will, you will see that word throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God remembers his covenant promise. And it will, we will read that of the Jews in exile in Babylon, and God remembered them. Does that mean he forgot them? You know, oh, oh, that's right. Seventy years ago, I, I guess I better start remembering now. I almost forgot. No. Remembered is a covenant word. God's a covenant-making Covenant-keeping God. So when it says God remembered Noah, that is covenant language. I've done the judgment. The 40 days are over. And all the beasts that were with him in the ark, and the world, God made a wind blow. word for wind is ruach, which is translated wind or spirit. I hope you understand the significance of this. This takes you back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. There's chaos, there's darkness, there's without form, and the spirit is hovering. There's darkness. There's without form. Chaos is on the earth after the flood, and the wind blows. The ruach of God blows. The spirit. It's a clear play on words here. That the Lord remembers, and the wind blows. The judgment is over. The recreation is about to begin. So I mean, the the, the figurative language here is really, 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 really significant in Hebrew. You really see what's going on here. Did I lose you there? Or are you with me? It's just really a neat, a neat parallel to Genesis one two. I mean, it really is of what uh, what God's doing here. So tomorrow, I want. I mean, um, next Wednesday, I want to go through this recreation theme that you see in chapter eight, and and just then chapter nine. And the thing about chapter nine is you think going to be better. And in chapter 9, Noah plants a vineyard, harvests a vineyard, and gets drunk. And one of his sons, and it's mysterious what's going on there, and you say, oh my goodness, it's not much better, is it? It's not much better. So, but we'll get into that a little later. All right, let me pray here. Fred, it's good to have you back. I'm glad you're feeling better. How's your sister doing? Should we continue to yeah, I know that. The yeah. Okay. Father, we're grateful for this day. Thank you. It looks like the sun is coming out after a good rain. Thank you for protecting us. There have been many parts of the country where there were devastating storms, like in Oklahoma and some other places. The Lord, you've sent the rain, 
uh, but you've kept us from some of that devastating consequences. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you're a God who um, means what you say, but in your dealings with humanity, you always, always, always deal with humanity and grace. There's always the gracious option that you, you give. We thank you for that. We thank you that you preserve Noah and his family in your grace but also that each one of us, you've rescued us from the enslavement to sin through the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that, that he is our Savior. He is our Lord. He's our Master. He's our coming King. He is the hope we have for the future because they'll always live in view of eternity. We are alive. We ask you to take care of us as we go our separate ways now to our jobs and other responsibilities. We ask, too, that you will help us to represent you well to a world that needs to hear the message of hope that Christ brings. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.